Let's take our Bibles then and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, while you're looking that up, it's on page uh, 1007 if you're using the church Bible. So grateful to Claudia for introducing us to the Easter sacrificial offering and drawing our attention to those different colored leaflets. I would select just one item from from those leaflets. Um, There's an organization called Think and Do, which provides physical and spiritual care for impoverished people in Egyptian villages. Great ministry. Uh, Pray for it. Uh, We have the privilege in supporting Think and Do of caring for those people in Egypt for their spiritual and physical needs. You can read more about it in the literature. Well, our text this morning from Hebrews 11 is verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 11. And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, if you've not been following the series so far, you'll have noticed that in these verses that I've read, the word faith occurs uh, a number of times. And in the media usage, the word faith turns up in the most surprising places. In TV dramas, for example, characters will often claim to have a faith. On social media, people identify themselves as people of faith. While various institutions and movements advertise that they are faith-based institutions. You notice that in none of those instances is it immediately apparent what it means to have faith. Here in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, we don't have a definition of faith either as such. Uh, Not any more than what we have in verse 1 in those famous words, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But in verse 6, what we do have is a statement of what faith does, put negatively and positively. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. There's a straight denial. Do you notice that? A straight denial. It states outright that no one can please God apart from faith. The author is using a verbal technique of stating something in the negative in order to affirm the positive. He's saying the only way to please God is by faith. What do we mean by please God? Well, we mean to be accepted by God, to be acceptable to God as people in ourselves. It means to have our worship of God our praises and our prayers, uh, the, the readings and, and 
the, the liturgy to be acceptable to God, we must have faith. In order for God to pronounce us as righteous, one of the words that's used about people who are acceptable to God, we must have faith. We are justified. We're pronounced righteous by faith. So there's a straight denial right at the very beginning of any other way to be righteous, of any other way to have our good works and our worship and our prayers and our praises acceptable to God and to have our persons accepted by God other than by faith. But there's also a strict essential in this text, a strict essential. What is it? Notice how he puts it. Whoever would draw near to God must believe. So, so we've moved from pleasing God, it's morphed into now approaching God. Whoever would draw near to God. And you'll agree with me that when you see that language, it's metaphorical language. We cannot physically draw near to God. Because where is God? God is in no particular place. We can come to church, but we cannot come to God in a physical manner like we come to church because God is not located anywhere. God is in Himself full-on engaged both everywhere inside the created reality we call the universe and outside of the created reality we call the universe. I mean, some of you are not even fully engaged in where you are in this room this morning. Let's be honest. But God is fully engaged before every one of us, wherever we are, at all times, in all places, throughout all of history, throughout created reality, and outside of created reality. So when we talk about drawing near to God, we are obviously talking in human terms. Well, how do we get close to God? Maybe that's a better way. How do we approach Him in a way that is pleasing to Him? The answer is by faith. When I, when I draw near to God conscious of my sin and I come therefore to Him in Christ by faith, I find Him to be a Savior. When I do my good works or when I come to worship God, to listen to His Word proclaimed and uh, hope to hear from Him, He is pleased if I believe in His Son, if I come by faith to be our teacher. When I draw near to God, <clears throat> formally in a sense, uh, to praise Him or to pray to Him, that is prayers of praise or prayers of please, if I come in faith, then He is pleased to meet me as my benefactor, the one who is pleased to give me every good and perfect gift. That's what it means then to draw near. And you see what he says, whoever would draw near to God must believe, and he makes two statements. Look at these statements with me, will you? He, we must believe that he is. That's what it says in the original. Now, it does mean, of course, that he exists, but God does not exist as we do. Many of us in this room, we exist 
This room exists. It's a real thing. This building we're in exists. This universe we live in exists. But God does not exist the way the universe exists, or this building exists, or you exist. We have to distinguish. What the Bible says is that God is. That is, He is absolute being. That's what God says about Himself. He reveals Himself, for example, to Israel and says, I am that I am. He is. He's not becoming anything. You and I are becoming something. We're getting old. We're perhaps getting wiser, or not, as the case may be. We are in a process. God isn't in a process. I am, He says. He is the God who is. Dear Lord Jesus, you remember in John's gospel, He repeatedly uses the very same language that God uses of Himself in the Old Testament, in, in to Moses and in Isaiah and elsewhere. I, I am, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Because as the Son of God, He is underived. You and I, our life is derived. We derived the genes we have from our parents. Bless them. We derive our life from God, who gives life to everything and existence to everything. But God is underived. He is of nothing, from no one. There is nothing before God. There is nothing on which God is dependent. He is self-existent, self-derived, self-sufficient, self-existent. And He has revealed Himself to us as our Creator, our Preserver, Provider, and Redeemer. So when it says we must believe that God is, it's saying we must believe that God is as He has revealed Himself to us. He is our Creator, Provider, Preserver, and Redeemer. We must believe that He is. Secondly, we must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, not everybody seeks God. Very few people ever seek after God, we might say. That is not a natural thing that people do. There are people that I've talked to, especially over the years that I was doing lots of university uh, missions uh, up and down the United Kingdom. People would say to me that they're seekers. And as I engaged them in conversation, I soon found out they were seeking God in all the wrong places because there was one God they were not seeking. And that was the God that I was there to talk about. They were seeking God in this, that, or the other form, shape, or whatever, philosophy. Because the Bible says that no one seeks after God. That is the God who's there. Not by nature we don't. We don't naturally seek after the God who's there. Rather, naturally, we pull away from the God who is there. In fact, the psalmist says, God is not, about some people, God is not in all their thoughts. Or, to put it another way, all their thoughts are, quote, there is no God. In other words, God does not figure in their imagination. He does not figure in their calculations. He does not figure in their thinking one bit. 
That's the reality. And yet there are those whom God prompts to seek Him. There are those to whom God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. That is a God-prompted seeking. It's a spirit-moved seeking of God. And maybe you're here this morning and you're on that search for the God who is there. And we're told that those who seek God are rewarded by God. He rewards those who seek Him. So is this a kind of quid pro quo arrangement? I do this and God does that. Well, actually, no, because the seeking is a God-given impulse. Let me give you a few quotations from the history of the church. Let me begin with uh, St. Augustine. It is His own gifts that God crowns, not our merits, even though we regard them as our own acts. If they are good, in other words, if my seeking brings me to a knowledge of the God who is there, among other things, if they are good, then they are God's gifts. We even have our own good works from God because faith and love are His gifts to us. Or, or take Thomas Aquinas, referring to that verse in Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord comes. Behold, His reward is with Him. This reward is nothing other than God Himself, because man ought to seek, to seek nothing apart from Him. God gives nothing other than His own self to those who seek Him. Or Martin Butzer, a reformer, when God rewards our good works, He is rewarding His works and His gifts in us rather than our good works. And what all of them are saying is that the desire to seek God, the desire to look for God, is a God-prompted desire that God rewards. He gives the desire and He rewards the desire. If you seek me, you will find me. And you see what the solution is. What is this reward? Well, it's in that verse. Who is it you find when you seek God? You find God. God said to Abraham, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. The reward, as Aquinas said, is nothing other than God Himself. The good that God is is God Himself. The good that God gives is God Himself. At the end of the day, what is eternal life? It is the knowledge of God. And if only you knew God, you would know that what I'm selling you this morning, what I'm putting to you this morning, what I'm offering you this morning in offering you God is the greatest thing that is on offer anywhere in our universe. It excels everything else that you could possibly be promised or possibly be on, offered anywhere at any time to have God, to have God what is God? God is love. To have God is to have love. Love in its fullest sense. Love in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine it in your highest and best moments. 
God is good. Good in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine or conceive of. God is good. And the good and the love that a God is are God's reward to those who seek Him. Well, it's into that context then that we come to the story of Noah. We're only going to begin it this morning, and we're going to look only in the barest way at the outline of the story. Noah himself was, uh, is unique in all of biblical literature. His work, his experience there, right at the very beginning of time, is a, a prophetic mirror of another event that is yet to be at the end of time. And that other event is the end of time as we know it. The end of history as we know it. The experience that Noah had is an experience that will only be enjoyed by people who are alive when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again in great power and glory to end history, to take the power and reign and to bring with Him final judgment. So his life is a mirror of that event that is future to us. And when he was born, his father named him in a prophetic manner with the name Noah, which means rest. That through Noah and his life and his work, the world would be judged and the holy seed, the promised Messiah, would be preserved for the future. And we're told several things about Noah in Genesis chapter 6. We're told that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is grace? Grace is a particular display of the love of God. God is love. And there's the love of God for Himself within the Trinity, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, in the Spirit. But when we talk about grace, we're thinking about the love of God when he loves that which does not please him, that which does not deserve it, that which deserves not love but something very much worse than we can imagine. We think about love as a gift that's not deserved, the grace of God. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't deserve it any more than you and I do. but. Grace found him, grace chose him, grace saved him, grace possessed him, grace used him. And if grace is something that comes from the heart of God, if grace is merely the movement, if we can use that word, and we probably can't use it correctly, but if we imagine it as a movement from God, God's love towards people like us, people who are fallen and failed, people who uh, do not deserve it, Noah found that grace. That's why we save ourselves. It's grace that we, by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And so when you read those early chapters of Genesis, you have this bleak and catalog of evil and only one interruption in the whole of that sixth chapter. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a man who found grace in the eyes of God. Noah was a righteous man, we're told. 
That means he was right with God. Just like we become right with God, when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Noah was right with God. That didn't mean he was perfect. Thirdly, we're told that Noah was blameless in his generation. Again, this does not mean he was perfect. But it is to say that he stood out from his contemporaries as a man of God, a person of God, in the midst of a, a generation of people who were not people of God. We're told, fourthly, that Noah walked with God. That's the expression we found when we were studying earlier the, book of, uh, the, the, the story of Enoch. Like Enoch, Noah moved in the same direction that God was moving in. He kept in step with the Spirit. He had no argument with God. There was no controversy between him and God. He, he was in agreement with God, going God's way in his life. He walked with God. But when we think about Noah, when we think about Noah, what is the first thing that comes in to our head? Earlier on, I went down and spoke to the children. I asked them this question, and their first answer, the first answer, all of their answers were right, by the way, just to let you know that our children are very well educated in this church. They knew all the right answers. They knew there was a lot of water involved. They, they knew there, was, uh, there were people in the ark and that there were animals in the ark. But they also knew that there was a big boat, and it was called an ark. So they get full marks for all their answers this morning. We remember Noah because of his ark. You've seen pictures of the ark, or at least imagined pictures of, the, of his ark. My son-in-law comes from Armenia, and Armenia has within it Mount Ararat, where the ark was supposed to have rested. There's a lake at the bottom of Mount, Ar of Mount Ararat called Lake Sevan, and our oldest grandchild is called after that lake, and our sister is called after a more beautiful lake in Scotland. Just, uh, just added that for just color and background. So there was an ark, and there was a destruction. There was a destruction of the flood, and Noah is remembered as the one who built the ark, and through that, his family was saved. And that story is in the Bible because the Bible is a document that God made, provided for His church and His people for all of the centuries of human experience. It's there in the, in the Scripture because that flood and the ark that, that saved those people are types of something that is going to happen in the future. So in the book of Job, for example, uh, God says, will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trodden? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away with a flood. And there's, in the book of Job, a reference back to the flood, and it puts it in its context. There was a generation of people who were snatched away be before their time. The flood snatched them away to death because the flood is a story, a message to humanity that God, who is, is a God who keeps His Word, whether those words are words of threat or words of promise. Those words that God said to Noah represented 
a pledge of future judgment and a pledge of future mercy. The Apostle Peter writes about the flood and he told the people of his day that that flood pointed to the final judgment by fire that will come at the end of the age. The Apostle Peter says, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And he compares it to what's going to happen in that great judgment of fire at the end of history. The Lord Jesus compared the days of Noah and the days of the Son of Man when the Son of Man comes in power and glory to end history and bring that final conflagration. The earth will be consumed with fire. Just as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. This is Jesus talking about the destruction that will come in that great day when He returns. In fact, Jesus goes further. He, he likens what life was like then in Noah's day with what life will be like at the end of history when Jesus returns. He says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Those are Jesus' words. He goes on to say this, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. There will be a generation of men and women like you and I who will be going around the normal routine of their lives, doing what they normally do in their lives. They will be enjoying pleasures if they can afford them and being denied them if they can't. They will be eating high on the hog, going to banquets, or they will be scrounging around for a piece of bread to eat, depending on their status in this life. They will have expectations. There will be a raise on the horizon that they will never enjoy. There will be a vacation that they're planning to go on that they will never go on. There will be a marriage fixed for next week, two weeks, three weeks. That marriage will never take place. There'll be a graduation being looked forward to after lots of hard work that will never find fruition. Just as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People going around their normal activities and not ready for that day. It will come suddenly upon them. And if anybody talks about it, they will not listen to them. They will scoff at the talk of judgment. They will mock ministers of the gospel who warn of the wrath to come, as people still do. They would rather have ministers say to them, peace, peace. They would rather follow the ideology of the day. I remember, I remember a, 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 an election, a general election in Britain, and when the, the prime minister's name was announced and he came out from Downing Street, there were hordes of people there, and they'd erected these great speakers and the music that was playing was, things can only get better. You don't even recognize that. I would have sung it to you, but I haven't practiced. And I can't remember the rest of the words. But it was resonating around it. And every time he came on the television, things can only get better. But they got worse as they always do. 
And there are those who want to hear the preachers saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And Jesus said again, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Well, we might say they weren't totally unaware. There was Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. There was Noah telling them the flood was coming, but the reality is, what did they do? They suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. They didn't want to hear it. When that day comes, will the people who are overtaken by that day wish that they had listened to Noah and believed Noah's message? You might say, I bet they wish they'd listened to Noah. On the day that Jesus comes back, will people be wishing that they listen to the preaching of the gospel and regret the decisions they'd made? Here is the mystery of lawlessness and iniquity and unbelief, and it is this, that they will not regret it. Their hearts will be implacably opposed to the God who is bringing judgment upon them. You can imagine when the rain started, the rationalizations that were being made, the weathermen on television saying, well, we've got this, we've got this movement, it's coming from the north, it's, it's going to hang over us for a little while, but it will move on. We're hoping the next week will be better, and the rain keeps falling, keeps falling, keeps falling. Day after day, the reports come in. Well, it's getting deeper, folks. We don't know when it's going to end. We, we advise you to go to higher ground. People go to higher ground. Each day there's a further report. People get as high as they can go. They get onto the top of their houses. Their houses are covered. They get to the hills. They're covered. The mountains, they're covered. Everything. Terror creeps in. Let me read to you what the Bible says about the end of history as we know it. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the Bible's account. It's the wrath of who? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is whose wrath will be revealed on that final day. Now you say, I don't want you to say these things, Liam. This is negative. But you need to know these things. There is a reason why this is in the Bible. It's because it's going to happen. The flood is God's marker at the beginning of the human race to warn the race from that moment on, this is the end result. Why? Because God sees into the heart. He knows. This is what God says about the people in Noah's day that the wickedness of humanity was great upon the earth. God looks at humanity that is made. Think of the little evils in your heart. 
These little evils in your heart contribute to the little evils in the heart of the person next to you and either side and in front of you and behind you. The little evils in this room all accumulate. They gain some momentum and strength as they're linked with the evils of the hearts of everybody in Philadelphia and then in the United States and then in this continent and in North and South America and then in Europe and then in, in Africa and then in, in Asia. And as all the little evils and all the big evils of the world mix and begin to be absorbed, they gain momentum and strength and the world as God sees it is full of evil. And every imagination of the thoughts of the heart are evil continually. These were bad days. And there are bad days to come. And you say, well, what is the hope for those bad days? Well, the days of Noah, they had this ark. Get into the ark, you'll be saved. Now, the ark itself, of course, is not what saved them. God could have saved them without the ark. The ark was a sacrament. It was a public, visible sign of God's intention to save those who believed in the Word of God that Noah was preaching to them. In the New Testament, the water on which the ark floated is likened to baptism. The ark is likened to Christ. In the second psalm, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, kiss the sun lest to be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Christ is the ark. Get into Christ. Trust and believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. There is no other way of salvation. And that final day, Noah and his family enter the ark. It's borne up in water, the visible sign of, of God's pledge and God's promise. Just as the sacraments are signs and pledges to the believer that they're carried through the judgment, carried through the judgment by the power of God, cleansed from their sins by the power of God, renewed by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, and brought through the judgment because they're in Christ. They're in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Noah's life teaches us on the surface. There's more to learn, but there's, there's a surface message. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is. Why would God judge the world? Because He is what He is. The good that is in God is God. God is not like you and I. We, we react. If we get angry, we get angry because we're provoked to anger. We, we react to bad behavior. I've noticed my daughter doing that. It reminded me of incidents in the past, although she was a perfect daughter, of course. But we respond and react to bad behavior. 
God doesn't react to bad behavior the way we do. He is. That means He's immutable. That means He's unchangeable. That means He is not being affected by our responses. He is holy, so as a holy God, He must punish evil. I mean, it, it, it's incompatible with Him. He must do something about that. And if there's evil, then He must punish evil. Either in us who do it, or in the Son who has taken our place and been made sin with our sin and borne the punishment we deserve. If we are in Him, then the wrath passes us by. He is the ark. So I ask you the question this morning, are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Him, the God who is, the God who rewards those who seek Him with Himself? Do you have Him? Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would please work in all of our hearts this morning that work that only You do, giving us the desire to seek You, the faith to trust You, and the grace to live for You day by day. In Jesus' strong name, amen.